0: Coming up on today's show, the federal government under pressure to step up amid overrepresentation of homeless veterans in our country. Remember the discussion around the flag? It had to go up so it could come down. It started a whole new conversation around Remembrance Day and Indigenous Veterans Day and the new trend in employment industry. It's called ghosting. People don't show up for interviews. People work half a shift and then disappear and you never hear from them again. It's happening more and more often. We'll find out why. Got a text during the commercial break from Kelly says there should not be one homeless veteran. I'm tired of the lip service to this. This makes me so mad it's a disgrace. Well, Kelly, you are not alone. There are a number of groups that are echoing exactly what you are saying there. Um, We're going to chat with Amanda DeFalco, who is Deputy Director and Veteran Strategy Lead, Built for Zero Canada, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time
1: thanks for having me.
0: When we take a look at the homeless representation among Canada's homeless population, it's really disproportionate right They make up far more of the homeless population than they do population in general.
1: yeah well we have estimates right now in Canada that between three to five thousand um, people experiencing homelessness um, are veterans. Uh, we're working right now to collect um, data so that we have a better understanding of every veteran that's experiencing homelessness in this country and, and better understanding their needs so that we can end it for
0: them. Now, have we, has there been a lot of work around why? Why so many veterans end up living on the streets?
1: Well, I think, you know, with all homelessness, ultimately it's a failure of the social safety net and federal policy that leads uh, to homelessness. And so we know that um, decisions, you know, to eliminate affordable housing and not be investing enough in affordable housing is the ultimate reason why any person um, becomes right. homelessness, homeless. But veterans are often faced with many obstacles when they return to civilian life that put them potentially at, at risk of homelessness, including um, difficulties in finding affordable housing or um, co-occurring um, mental health issues, particularly post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, they're coming from an extraordinary situation in a lot of cases Um, And it's more than just a house, right? There's a lot of support that's needed around um, making sure that our veterans are taken care of for the service they've provided.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, housing is a fundamental human right for all people in Canada. Um, We have a duty in Canada, um, you know, to protect and serve those who've protected our rights and freedoms. And so when we see veterans experiencing homelessness in particular, it's really um, devastating, um, because I think it's it's a poor reflection on this country in terms of uh, those who have sacrificed so much to then um, be left without, without a home, essentially.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we'll get into the homelessness in just a second here. But the other issues, you mentioned mental health. I know addiction is often mentioned. These kinds of concerns that are, you know, new, not unique, certainly to the mm-hmm. veterans, but far more common and, and completely understandable, correct? What kind of work's being done around those areas?
1: Yeah, I think in particular, you know, we we focus on on housing first and then providing the wraparound services right. yeah. and supports. And so certainly to prevent veterans from experiencing homelessness, coordinated efforts by providing housing, basic health care needs and mental health counseling and support services. Um, are all necessary, and ultimately what becomes really challenging for people experiencing homelessness, veterans included, is trying to navigate those services in the midst of crisis is very difficult, and what we're trying to do ultimately um, is invest, have the federal government invest in that housing, and then locally provide the wraparound services and supports. We have excellent veteran networks. We know what we need to do in terms of the housing and homelessness expertise, and it is happening Um, on the ground but without that federal investment in affordable housing um, you know that's ultimately uh, where we need to go next we already have great resources happening locally um, in terms of programs and services Um, But without that housing, uh, you know, we can only do so
0: much. Exactly. That's the major stumbling block. Now, you know, Mm -hmm. it was only a couple of years ago where a report came out with a series of recommendations. We've heard this before with Mm -hmm. the federal government saying, you know, these are the things that we need to do to address this situation. And the government said, we agree. We'll work on them. Mm -hmm. But nothing's Mm -hmm. happened, right? Or very little has happened?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, while the the new Ministry of of Housing and Diversity and Inclusion is, is an important first step, we need to stop talking and start putting those what we already know we need to do into action and decisive action and immediately because you know as you know um housing is is becoming less and less affordable in this country and the uh, gap for those experiencing homelessness is is uh you know devastating and so we need the federal leadership to step up immediately
0: so the recommendations that were made and that the government said yes we agree with these recommendations uh what were they what what were they supposed to get started on two years ago now
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, the recommendations that came out through last year's federal budget was a $45 million investment in uh, veterans' housing and support services. And so that putting that into action is going to be critical. And, you know, we've seen in the U.S. they've been able to cut veteran homelessness in half um, by having uh, federal housing uh, benefits for veterans experiencing homelessness and those wraparound services to support them. And we know that that works. We've seen communities in the U.S. and now we're starting to see some in Canada actually being able to significantly reduce and functionally
0: end homelessness as a result of those types of investments. Um, Now, you said, you know, it's the government that's sort of uh, dragging their feet or at least not keeping up, but there's a lot of groups in our country that are working hard, including your group. So what kind of, you know, projects have you launched, in spite of the government almost, what the kind of efforts Mm -hmm. are underway by different community groups around the country?
1: Absolutely. There's so many community groups right now on the ground that are doing the heavy lifting uh, of identifying veterans understanding their needs, and then being able to leverage and stack different kinds of veteran supports and housing and homelessness supports to get them housed and sustained. So we have a movement called Built for Zero, uh, where we're working really hard with 17 different cities across the country um, to functionally end veterans' homelessness. And there's lots of work currently underway about coordinating those veteran um, services and supports with the housing services and supports as well as health. And so when those services are able to identify collectively what a person, what a veteran needs, and then work behind the scenes together to be able to pair and complement each other's resources and services and deliver it um, holistically to that veteran, um, ultimately I think that that leads to success. But again, without the housing, I I can't repeat this enough, but Mm -hmm. without the affordable housing and a subsidy for that veteran—it's—it's um, it's really really hard to sustain um, the housing simply because the housing is just so unaffordable right now.
0: So obviously, conversations like this—you um, know—increase the awareness and among the public, and maybe that pressures the government. But um, are you seeing any signs of progress on this file? I mean, I know this has been going on for a while now.
1: I mean, in terms of the federal file, I would say. Um, lots of talk. We need yeah. to see action yeah. in terms of what the communities are doing on the ground. They are working so hard, um, and as a result, making um, you know good progress. Uh, they're building relationships with services. Uh, again, they're they're preventing ultimately the veteran from having to try to figure out how to pair those services themselves by running from agency to agency. They're trying to do that work. And one of the most important things we're doing is being able to collect the data on veteran homelessness in this country, which is critical to being able to then inform policy to make good, sound decisions about where to invest our funding. And so... Um, being able to understand the data at an individual level so that the community can respond to that veteran need as well as being able to aggregate that data across a national level allows us then to inform um, good policy and uh, respond accordingly so that no veteran has to experience homelessness in Canada.
0: Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing and uh, the pressure that you're putting on the government. Hopefully they come around and we can uh, we can deal with this issue in a meaningful way. Thanks so much, Amanda. Thank you so much. That's Amanda DeFalco, who is Deputy Director of the Veterans Strategy Lead, uh, Built for Zero Canada, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And I just think, um, you know, homelessness is an issue for everybody who's, you know, um, experiencing homelessness. I mean, and I don't want to say that it's, it's more of an issue for any one group of people than it is for others. But when you take a look at what we owe veterans in this country, when you take a look at... Um, people who volunteer to ultimately know they may be called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice and who go you know I mean we're not in in a lot of areas now but we've been there right we've been in Afghanistan we've we've been in Sarajevo and and these are the people on the front lines representing Canada and it just seems to me it's really really disappointing that when they come back, not only is the homelessness issue there, which obviously it is, and that's a tragedy, but all the other issues that they're dealing with that go on, um, and the government seems to just let them down time and time again. If there's any Canadian citizens that you're going to say, you know what, that can't happen to, it's our veterans, right? I mean, it's just, it's something that the government, like so many other files that we've talked about, you name it, climate control, Truth and reconciliation. The list goes on and on and on. Sexual conduct in the military. On and on it goes. Yes, we think this is a major problem. We're going to deal with it. And then they don't. And they just kicked the can down the road. Two years ago, this report came out and said, this is what we need to do to address um, homeless veterans in our country. And The government said, you're right. We agree with this. We're going to adopt these recommendations. We're going to get to work on this file. Now, two years down the road, we're hearing from these groups that deal with this saying, You didn't do anything. We need you to get on board. We need you to help us. These agencies are doing all the work, but once again, the government lagging behind, and it's becoming a trend that just keeps popping up on so many different important issues in our country. So this week, we've had a couple of discussions about Remembrance Day, and um, how many of you, be honest, how many of you found out for the first time yesterday that November 8th was um, Indigenous Veterans Day in Canada? Started in 1994 in Manitoba and has spread slowly across the country since then. Um, But yesterday, as far as I can remember, was the first time that it was a topic of discussion in this country, very prominently. I'm sure it's been discussed at other levels, but it seems to me like it was a key part of the discussion yesterday. And a lot of that was because of the issue with our flags, which were lowered to um, half-staff during the discovery of the unmarked graves, and they've been down ever since. So now we came to this point where, okay, what are we going to do come Remembrance Day? Uh, So the decision was made to raise them at sunset on Sunday so they could be lowered at sunrise on Monday, November 8th, in recognition of Indigenous Veterans Day. Then they were raised at sunset last night, and they'll be lowered again on Thursday in recognition of Remembrance Day. But it's certainly brought this issue to more prominence than we've seen before. So let's find out why things have changed and where we are in terms of Remembrance Day and Indigenous Veterans Day and how the two fit together with Trevor Norris, who is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Studies at Brock University. Trevor, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, with all the controversy and discussion around the flags and raising and then lowering them and then raising them again, there seems we're having a bit of a different discussion around Remembrance Day in our country this year. Would you agree with that? It's slightly different than the topics we've discussed in years past.
2: Yeah, I think that's quite right. It really does feel a little bit different. You know, even uh, before the issue of the the flag came to a head, um, it did feel different even in the lead-up. But really that, that flag issue kind of, uh, made it front page news and really forced a, a discussion and, and some decisions, uh, about what to do about that, that flag. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're right. It really, this year does seem a bit different. I think what we're, what we're seeing then is uh, two aspects of Canadian history, uh, colliding together and, you know, most visibly manifest, uh, in the flag uh, debate. But what's, what's interesting is I, I think uh, you're also quite right to note that uh, not enough Canadians knew that yesterday was also an important yeah. day of remembrance, and uh, it's, uh, it's tragic and unfortunate that it really took the residential school uh, issue to bring that out to kind of more wider recognition because, as you noted, it, it has been around for some time, uh, over 25 years. Um, but, you know, to to look on the positive side, at least now we're having these kind of conversations and I think a bit more of a complex uh, and, and and truthful conversation about what what it means to be Canadian and, and what are some important parts of our Canadian history that have been
0: overlooked. And Trevor, I think that's the key point when you say it's complex, because it is. Um, the war history of uh, the Indigenous people of Canada is exemplary. I mean, they're remarkable and in, in, in deserving in every way of the recognition of all veterans of this country. But like you say, it's complex. There's more to it that, than that in terms of the way they've been involved in even Remembrance Day ceremonies going back through history until not all that long ago. It has been a very complex relationship, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, it has been a very, a very complex. And I I regret myself not having learned about this earlier. you know we had remembrance Day ceremonies in my own high school and uh, and, and years before that and this was really not on the radar. nope. Uh, I kind of was brought up with a bit of a naive and one-sided view of, of Canada and and also of remembrance Day. So I, I think it's a great improvement and, and real progress that we're now recognizing these indigenous veterans, many of many of whom you know, faced significant persecution when they actually came back to Canada. They couldn't vote. You know, some of them had gone to residential schools or even their children went, their siblings. Um, so they really faced quite a different experience when they came back to Canada. But I think also what's interesting is if, if we look at this in a bit, like a bit more complex way, especially in World War I, for example, Canada was in Europe fighting to defend treaty obligations regarding conflict between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Serbia a hundred years ago. Meanwhile, our treaty obligations on this continent were being ignored and overlooked. So I think there's it is complicated, and it is an improvement to begin to recognize the importance of veterans. But I think what also is important to recognize is that uh, we can have a kind of a naive view of remembrance day that it's all all about the heroism of Canadians and and fighting on other continents. And that's certainly very true. Of course, we, you know, we. Who knows what Canada would be like if we hadn't fought against Hitler, for example. So, you know, the heroes that, that fought in those conflicts are very important. But it can present a, a one-sided view that war is something that happens on other continents. But war is something that happened on this continent too, and uh, that's a part of the founding of this country and the origin of this country. Uh, and 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 I think what what's a kind of a more complex view that Canadians are developing because of conversations like this, is that there there is a history of military conflict on this continent, too. And, and that, I'm not just talking about, for example, uh, you know, the War of 1812 or a conflict between the French and English. Um, I'm talking more directly about Cologne.
0: Sure, before that, yeah. Um, and, and then that leads us to how Remembrance Day this year walk side-by-side side with the reconciliation efforts and discussion that have been going on for several months in this country and how the two sort of, they need to go together. If we're, if we're really going to go have true remembrance of our Indigenous veterans and we're really going to have true reconciliation, those two issues are closely intertwined.
2: I think that's very, very well said. This is, they are very closely intertwined. And if we're going to be kind of a, a mature nation with a complex perspective on our own history, um then it's important to start bringing these two together the heroism of, of canadian soldiers in, in military conflicts with the the tragedy and horrors that happen here on this continent because you know in, in other contexts like in, in authoritarian countries uh or you know one-party states they don't have these kind of conversations the, the government dictates what its population learns in general and in school contexts regarding the heroism of, of 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 the founding of those countries but here we're not a one-party state. You know, we're a democracy with mm-hmm. uh, supposedly progressive liberal values. So hopefully we as a country are capable of these conversations uh, and see them as being meaning- meaningful and worthwhile. Uh, and schools are, are a great place for, for this. I mean, part of the, the article that this conversation is coming out of uh, that I co-authored uh, in, a, in a publication called The Conversation is about the idea that uh schools are contexts or places where these kind of conversations can happen. And, uh, you know, in a one-party state, that does not happen. But if we're going to allow ceremonies and remembrance events like Remembrance Day into a school context, then we, should, we also open the door to allowing an opportunity uh, for teachers and, and students to have kind of more complicated conversations uh, about the nature of Canada, the origins of Canada, Uh, and things that have been left out.
0: And I think you kind of answered the question, but I want to ask it because I'm getting it all over the text (laughs) line. And I think it's a a fair question. A lot of people are saying Remembrance Day is about all of our veterans. Why do we need to have a special Indigenous Veterans Day if we're recognizing all of our veterans, we're recognizing all of our veterans? Why do we need the distinct day, and why do we need to have this conversation, Trevor? Well, I think
2: that the problem is that they have been so often overlooked, and they're easily overlooked uh, on November 11th. I mean, my concern in separating the two dates is that people that don't want to think about Indigenous veterans or Canadian Indigenous history are just going to ignore Monday, yesterday, hmm. uh, and that and that holiday, and just focus on Canada being born in Vineyard Ridge, you know, or other yeah. mil- military conflicts. So, I mean, my concern is a bit about the separation that we can that those who don't want to think about this can kind of get away with their doing what they do on November 11th and and that be the end of it. Um, but I think the problem is there because there hasn't been adequate recognition of their contributions, uh, it's worth worthwhile having a separate day. And, and by the way, also, there is a, a monument in Ottawa specifically to Indigenous veterans. But I, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of taking a different perspective, which is that we need a more holistic, integrated perspective of Canada and Canadian history and to bring these two together. Uh, and that's really only because my concern is that people that don't want to learn about this, which, you know, actually included myself uh, until just a few decades ago uh, because of my own educational experiences were we're quite one-sided. So people that don't want to learn about this can easily kind of skip.
0: Yeah, I think you make a good point. It's an important conversation to have, and I'm glad we did today, Trevor. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. That's Trevor Norris, who is associate professor at the Department of Educational Studies at Brock University. And yeah, a lot of you texting in, and believe me, the same thought crossed cross my mind. You know, we, when you, I didn't know that we had an Indigenous Veterans Day on November eighth until yesterday. I'm going to be completely honest with you, and it's been around since 1994 in Manitoba, and 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 I, a lot of you asking, well, why do we need to have a separate Indigenous Veterans Day? I thought Remembrance Day was for all veterans. Why do we need to specialize this? Why do we need to focus on this? Why do we need to split our veterans into different categories? Same thought crossed my mind. I think it's natural to think that. And, you know, the response that we got from Trevor is, um, because it's important and it's not just, it's not just the, you know, when, you, when we talk about Remembrance Day, we talk about World War I, we talk about World War II, we talk about um, Afghanistan, Korea. Those kinds of conflicts come to mind. But he's saying, you know what, that sort of overlooks the conflicts that took place in our country way, 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 way back. And they deserve our recognition too. That's the explanation. All right. And I'm glad Trevor joined us to provide that for us today. So how many of you are like me? And if you went and applied for a job and they contacted you and said, okay, we're going to bring you in for an interview, um, you would attend the interview. Or if you didn't want to attend the interview, you would at least get in touch with them and say, you know what, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Something has come up uh, and I won't be attending the interview. Going one step further, how many of you would actually show up for a job, decide you don't like the job, take your lunch break and never come back, or you know, don't come back for day two, whatever the case may be, just just vanish. No message to the employer whatsoever. It's becoming more and more common. In Canada. It's really surprising to me. So let's get some details on what's going on there. We're going to chat with Alyssa Monk, who is Regional Director for Hayes Specialist Recruitment. Uh, Alyssa, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, yeah. Thanks very much for having me. This just seems completely counterintuitive to everything I've ever been taught about being an adult. People just are literally not even showing up for a job interview? Yep, that's correct. Correct. What kind of numbers? I mean, I imagine this has always happened in very small numbers. Uh, Has it really, really ramped up recently? It
3: has, yeah. We've definitely seen an increase in the uh, number of people that are not showing up for interviews, 100%. But I think the more concerning piece is, as you were saying just before, around people accepting jobs and either not showing up on the start date or ghosting, as you said, a couple of days after. That's, That's... that's the really disappointing piece to that, the situation.
0: Well, I mean, that would be if if you're trying to operate a business and you, you're going to be open and in business that day or whatever the case may be and you mm-hmm. need a certain number of staff and they just don't show up, it's got to be maddening for employers.
3: Uh, totally. You know, employers make time out of their day for onboarding. Uh, they, you know, it costs money to order equipment and things like that to get people set up. Um, you know, there's, there's more than just, you know, arranging a start date at the moment when it comes to, you know, getting people started. And uh, it, it's, it's very off-putting for employers right now.
0: I can imagine. Now, is this happening in all spectrums of the labour force or are we de- is this, you know, um, low-wage low entry-level positions where this is happening more? Tell us how the demographics break down.
3: Yeah, I think that's always happened in that type of um, in in that type of demographic of roles. Um, when you're talking about the traditional blue collar roles or service industry roles, I'd say it's always been fairly commonplace uh, for you know ghosting for interviews or, or starting a job that you know essentially is maybe in in the um, applicant size, maybe more of a temporary solution. Um, so that that's. That's always been commonplace, I would say. Um, the thing that hasn't always been commonplace is this happening in professional roles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anything from um, I don't know, like a more a, a clerical role of a of a management level, right through to director to VP type levels. It, it's happening right across the
0: spectrum now. And is it happening more because of the situation where we know? So many businesses have a lot of vacancies, they can't find people. So people with jobs that maybe they don't like or just landed a job that turns out they've changed their mind, it's just that much easier to jump into something else. Is that the, the, the reasoning here?
3: Absolutely, yeah. I think people are just being more considerate uh, considered in terms of the jobs that they're taking and, and asking the question, do they like the job and is this the right job for me? And, um, whereas before, especially in Alberta, they, you know, people haven't had as much choice. We've mm-hmm. been in a, in an economy that ultimately has retracted year over year in the last five, six years. And it has been tough. So, uh, for a very long time, I think people have worked in jobs or had jobs that, um, you know, they've done because they had to rather than they want to. And it, it's now a case that the table's turned and they're really considering what do they want to do?
0: Um, is there a risk to that kind of behavior? I mean, I imagine you're just sort of thinking, oh, whatever, I'll move on to the next position. Can you build something of a of a reputation? Is there any way for other prospective employers down the line to find out that you have a history of, of ghosting or not showing up or things like that? Is there a risk to your reputation?
3: Absolutely, yes. So um, when you say that, is there any way for people to find out that that's your reputation? Um, you know, there's, there's a few, few commonplace things that happen. Um, first of all, people move companies all the time. So the person that you ghosted at X employer will move to Y employer without you realizing. (laughs) Um, and, and that's how these things tend to go. Um, you know, they don't forget the people that showed up one day and then didn't show up the next.
0: For sure, yeah.
3: So so that's typically how those things, you, you know, follow you around. Um, uh, and definitely something that you don't want to be getting into the habit of because you just don't know what bridges you're going to be burning over the next few years.
0: No question. What about the fact that so much of it is done online? Like, are you building an online reputation? I mean, a lot of this, you're applying for the job online, uh, or sometimes through agencies, you know, be it Indeed or, or whatever the case may be. Is there any way to sort of track your history on those online application processes?
3: Yeah, I think um, there's, in terms of tracking as a as a like as an applicant, yeah. I don't think that there's a, a one stop shop. I think the thing that people do need to be aware of is um, like companies, like recruitment agencies, have access to lots of different tools. So whether it be LinkedIn or Indeed or other job boards or even our own databases where people send in their resumes. And um, the thing that's always a red flag would be that if you know your online profile or the resume that you have on Indeed or the resumes that maybe you've sent into us in the past directly um, don't match. Okay. Right, and and that's always a red flag. So um, I think people forget that there's different versions of of their work history out there on the odd occasion, and that is definitely um, yeah a red flag.
0: Now, if you're an employer and you're running into this, and I've got some people texting me to say, yeah, I have a company and this happened to me all the time, um, what can you do to protect yourself? Is there anything that you can do to sort of make sure this doesn't happen to you over and over again?
3: Absolutely. So it is a bit of a learning process for employers, um, and there's definitely pieces of advice that we're giving to our clients at the moment to try and limit um, uh, limit this issue. So number one, um, I would say uh, speed up your hiring process. So whereas before you could make uh considered decisions and take a bit more time um you've got to speed that up if you're really keen on somebody and you want to get somebody on board by a certain date really consider all of the steps that you take through that hiring process and make sure it's condensed so if you're going to do first interviews on the monday schedule the second interviews for the tuesday or the wednesday so okay. make it make it happen in very quick succession and um, and the other piece of recommend uh, recommended advice that we're giving is as a prospective employer, increase the number of times that you're contacting the person through the um, employment process. And the idea of that is create the relationship up front. So people are more uh, less likely to ghost you if they feel they have a connection to you. So, you know, don't just have the interview conversations. Have the conversations in the middle where you're picking up the phone to the person and asking them questions and allowing them to ask you questions in between. Um. And then um, I would say, finally, um, don't forget to woo the candidate on the call. Right. So gone is a day where, you know, I guess the employers are in control of the questions that they ask and, and employees are kind of able to ask questions at the end. You've got to go up front with your employer value pr- proposition. Like, what can you offer them? What's in it for them? Why would they want to come to the interview? Okay. Um, you're not showing your cards too early. You're, you're just showing them at the time that you are going to need to be able to get them to commit to
0: the interview or the start date. Interesting. But times have really changed, hey? I mean, it's a whole new environment out there right now.
3: Yes. It is. It's a learning process for everybody right now. So a total readjustment.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Alyssa, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us.
3: No worries. Thanks very much for having me.
0: That's Alyssa Monk, who is a regional director for Hayes Specialist Recruitment. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.